Hello, welcome again to Sports Unlocked, going through all the week's sports news with me, Rob Harris from Sky News, Martin Ziegler from The Times and Tarek Panja from The New York Times. Martin, what a trip it was to Hamburg for you for the Euros finals draw. So you're sitting in the room thinking, oh, this is going to be one of those routine mundane draws. Yeah, um, and sort of strange noises started coming through the speaker system, sort of disconcerting both the sort of people who were doing the draw, Steve McManaman, David Silva, um, Georgia Marchetti, the UEFA Deputy General Secretary. Um, they kept going, but um, they, these noises were of an erotic nature, and it, it it turned out it was the prankster, the same the, the guy who's claimed responsibility is the same person who did the same thing at the uh, with the BBC's coverage of an FA Cup match involving Liverpool and Wolverhampton Wanderers. Um, and yeah, he. Uh, it, I mean, actually, it's it, for, for the the German security people. It's a bit of an embarrassing security breach because it looks like he got in to the venue the day before during the rehearsals. And I, I mean, there was there was strong security by the Germans there, <laughs> except the day before. I mean, that's that's bad. Well, fair play to him. He sounds like a man who can get things done. He's more organised than the organiser of these events. So um, maybe. Um... There's a future job offer waiting in the wings for this chap, Martin. Yeah, like one of those computer hackers who gets taken on board to like devise ways of stopping um, computer hacking. It's, exactly. yeah, perhaps he, he's got a he's going to be a millionaire. And we had Giorgio Marchetti on stage having to try to find a way of uh, dealing with the unexpected. Is he Deputy Secretary General? Yeah, I thought he, he, he kept his cool pretty well. They just sort of talked over it eventually. When the BBC happened, there was Gary Lineker and was laughing about it and stuff like that. The, the UEFA and the other people just ignoring it. Ever the pro Giorgio. I think uh, the words he described, uh, there is a funny noise. <laughs> UEFA actually did have quite an exciting week in the, the Women's Nations League, big as we saw with the introduction of the men's competition a few years ago. Some perhaps less familiar with the launch of this. And then we got that exciting end with England and Netherlands group and all that qualification. But it wasn't just exciting. It threw up all sorts of integrity issues as well. Yeah, strange one, this. England playing Scotland. And the, the kind of goal difference was going to be crucial into whether they would qualify for the Olympics. But obviously, England, Scotland, both play for the British Olympic team. So you can argue that actually it meant... That this it made sense for the Scottish to to try and lose by a, a high margin, which they did six nil. Um, but actually, before the match, I, I you know I was speaking to people in um, the Scottish and Welsh FA, and they're very anti the Olympics anyway. So I think they would have been trying the hardest anyway because they don't really they don't like it because their players don't get in it's a bit embarrassing they say it doesn't do anything for um driving participation in their countries so um i i think they can they 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 escape the integrity um <laughs> inspector this time and this can sound particularly odd very british for those listening around the world the only time britain competes in footballers Britain is at the Olympics and only when there could be an agreement between the home nations and FIFA. So there isn't one over the men's team, is there, which would have to qualify through the England under-21s performances. But they do have one through the women's game, but then it has to be England that secures qualification. Then at Team GB level, all four home nations could compete at the Olympics. But in this case, England didn't secure their, secure their qualification 
But if the old system had been used and it was qualification through the Women's World Cup, then they would have got their place in Paris. And adding to that drama, as you're saying, in, it, going into stoppage time in the games on Tuesday night, it looked like England had done enough. They scored a sixth goal, but then the Netherlands immediately in their game scored a fourth goal. So a dramatic end. One of those things where it went from uh, you know, delight and joy for England to sort of despair. But uh, hey, that's sport. And Tarek, in Brazil, what a week of uh, football there to end the season. Dramatic end there as well. Well, a, a very, very slow face plant from Botafogo, that um, Rio team was surging ahead for most of the season, 13 points ahead owned by multi-club investor John Texter. He has a bit of Palace, a bit of... Um, owns Lyon as well in France, another team haunted by relegation, unfortunately. Um, and they have uh, squandered that 13-point lead with five games to go. It's incredible, um, that collapse. Didn't win in, in the last five. Um, lost to the eventual champion Palmeiras, five games ago, and that had John Texter on the field, um, screaming into cameras, calling out the Brazilian league as being corrupt, um, having a complete meltdown, asking to be punished by the league, and and guess what? He was. Um, and then since then, the team didn't win another game and finished, I think, fourth. Um, and um, Palmeiras, giant team from from Sao Paulo, ended up winning, winning the league. Um, a really interesting competition this year for the other side of the table as well. Pele's former team, Santos, being relegated for the first time. That's a team that, you know, Pele and, and that, that the greats from the late 60s, 70s were travelling around the world. They were so good playing um, everyone and anyone. Um, big European tour. They're, they're going down. Also formed Neymar and Rubinho, huge Brazilian Team big story that um, kind of incredible to see Santos fall. So yeah, very exciting end to the Brazilian league, which will have a City Football Group owned team in um, the top flight again, with Bahia staying up thanks to a win uh, against Atlético Mineiro. Great news for Sheikh Mansour, who was busy this week meeting Vladimir Putin. And Vladimir Putin met another Premier League owner too this week. Really? Burnley's Alan Pace, was it? Not quite. Mohammed bin Salman, although is he a Premier League owner? Uh, Oh, that's a good question. Probably not officially, but he is the head of the Saudi Public Investment Fund, which owns Newcastle United. So um, so by default, perhaps. Legally binding assurances, of course, from the Premier League that the Saudi state Mohammed bin Salman will have no effect on that that club, but it does raise an interesting point. I was thinking about this. Roman Abramovich, the Chelsea owner, effectively got kicked out of the UK um, for his business relationship alliance with Vladimir Putin following the um, um, invasion of Ukraine. Now you have these Gulf potentates rolling out the red carpet, and only that giving. Um, you know, magisterial air show in welcoming Vladimir Putin, that air show in the colours of the Russian flag and, and everything else. And th- clearly doing business between these two countries. They, you know, 
depending which way you want to slice it, own two Premier League football clubs too, if you like. What's the line here? Well, was the issue in England the fact that individuals like Abramovich were sanctioned? That sort of forced the Premier League's hands. But as we have discussed before, the Premier League did embroil itself in the politics of the war, particularly with the show of displays, with solidarity with Ukraine. And even this week, we had people on social media contrasting the image of Sheikh Mansour meeting Vladimir Putin and those no-war Ukraine flag banners at the Etihad. Yeah, it's quite right. They, that you're right, Rob. He he was sanctioned, and and, and that 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 that's that's the the result of that. But it does raise the point about um, you know if states or if people close to countries own own our Premier League teams in England, and and then the relationship between countries deteriorates to an extent they become persona non grata or country non grata, if you want. What then happens? It's that question of whether states or people linked to states should own um, you know heritage items like. Premier League football clubs. Yeah, the whole state ownership thing is a is a very very tricky one. But um, but obviously, you know, individuals can buy Premier League clubs and pretend they're not part of the the state, even though they effectively are. So, is it, even if you brought in a ban on state ownership, it's it's it, I think it actually it's quite difficult to implement. As we've seen, states can take over, it seems, complete competitions in some way in football. Busy week for Mohammed bin Salman. How invested do you think he was in the Asian Champions League decision? Now, imagine if, say, in Europe, the European Champions League every year went to the same place for the final, but not just the final, but the semi-finals and the quarter-finals. Well, that's what's going to happen soon until 2029, isn't it? A five-year agreement that just came out of nowhere yet more for saudi arabia it's quite incredible to be honest it's not just that the fact it's been there the decision making process in asian football it just seems we've talked about how opaque football is and sports governance is more broadly but asian football under sheikh salman of bahrain the longest serving regional um football head is is just such a closed box and these announcements get made and this this is an entire new tournament, essentially, going to Saudi Arabia. There's going to be um, you know, a multi-team event year after year for five straight years in that one country. It's fascinating and also odd, uh, Martin. Not so fast. Not so fast. It's only going to be there for two years, and then they're going to review it to make sure that everything is fine. So I think that, do you think there's a, a serious risk that it won't stay for the full five years? Who's going to conduct that review? No. Six <laughs> <laughs> Salman. So immediately after that vote, if you remember, by the FIFA Council that cooked up a deal for Saudi for 2034, the Asian Confederation and Sheikh Salman immediately put a statement out backing it, even though Australia was still thinking about it, at least then. And it is easier within within half an hour, uh, and the, the, the all of Asian football is unanimous in its support of this one bid. That was news to some of the Asian members who are considering bidding for the competition. And um, yeah, it just tells you how how business is done, maybe in, in that confederation. Sheikh Salman, he he was seen as favourite to be the FIFA president after Sepp Blatter, wasn't he? I mean, he was actually beaten by Infantino. Um, maybe. 
you know, he's not he's, he's not doing much to show that he was <laughs> to me anyway that he uh, he should have won that competition. Um, for, for example, this decision on the Asian Champions League, I don't, I don't even know. I mean, was this a an executive board decision? Was there a meeting about it? I, I think it was just announced, wasn't it? I mean, I, I don't even I don't even know if there was a vote on it. It just seems strange. Surely, something so consequential, you need to put it out to at least the sense of an open process. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. And it's not only that it's going where it's going to be, the, the reformatting of the event. Um, it seems similar, Rob. You were in Lisbon during COVID, I think. You went to cover that Champions League tournament, the final eight, I think it was called, and it was held in, in Portugal because of COVID, etc. There was some consideration whether UEFA might go down that road if it, if it was... How do, how, do you, how do you remember that tournament, Rob? Those one-off knockout games, um, probably with few in attendance, if any, I, I guess. Yeah, the only attendance really was the media. And I think it was sort of seen as more exciting because of the way the quarterfinals panned out. So that was the first real introduction to these single-leg matches. So, you know, we had Leipzig beating Atletico Madrid 2-1, PSG only just beating Atalanta 2-1, Man City losing to Lyon 3-1, and Bayern Munich 8-2 thumping of Barcelona. So I think that really got people excited for this format. Then we had the semi-finals, which were 3-0 victories for both PSG and Bayern before the uh, narrow victory for Bayern over PSG in the final. So perhaps many people's views of the format were shaped by the quarterfinals as seeing this as the perhaps great way of doing things in future, but challenges if you did have fans and getting four clubs at least of fans into one city or a couple of cities close by in that final week and then some fans not knowing if they'd be staying or going back. Good news for Saudi Arabia, who are desperate to get all of these events, um, whether it's football, golf, boxing or World Cups. All roads seem to be leading there. I did uh, joke a few weeks ago about that Saudi Arabia should join the Commonwealth and host the Commonwealth Games. But now we've seen the Gold Coast pull out of, of hosting 2026. There's no... Um, there's no obvious host. The British government won't step in again. It stepped in last time to rescue them because Durban couldn't host, so Birmingham stepped in. Um, and it's now, a, you know, where is it going to be? And I think I think there's a real danger now. It's going to be completely broken up and you know, the Commonwealth Games, as we know it, is not, is not going to happen anymore. But that might be the right thing. Maybe it's it's past its, its, its use-by date. An event that started out as the Empire Games, now with the the remnants of the British Empire, part of the, the Commonwealth. And within a busy sporting year, just what place does it have? Well, for athletes who perhaps might not qualify for the Olympics, it gives them an international event where they can win medals. It might help towards sponsorships. But certainly you'd think it's got a diminished status as an event. I mean, maybe it's just me. I can't remember much that happened at the Birmingham 2022 Games. No, it seems very much a consolation cup, if you want, for for those athletes. And, you know, elite um, sporting events, you know, there is a reason why they're called elite sporting events. You know, sadly, if you're not good enough to get to those, perhaps spending hundreds of millions of dollars for something that is marginal at best probably isn't the right way of spending money. And also think about the climatic costs. We're talking about climate change. Um 
week of COP28 and environmental um, questions that the world is asking. Do you need another mega event that no one cares about, which involves ferrying athletes across the world? It can mean something to the local populations, but maybe one solution, I've mentioned it before on this pod certainly, is the 24-hour games. So you could just split events into different places. You don't need to build complete athlete villages because you spread the athletes in multiple countries and it gives you a sort of 24-hour swathe of live broadcast by hosting uh, different sports in different countries. Yeah, perhaps. I think the Commonwealth Games Federation might have been listening to you, Rob, because uh, my colleague Matt Lawton is reported today saying that the sort of plan B discussions are that you to, to split it up so you have like a series of different championships um, for, for different sports so it eases the financial burden. So, uh, yeah, maybe maybe it's going to be called the Rob Harris Commonwealth Games. So, so what you so these events will be championships in various sports, but not world championships, but Commonwealth championships. Yeah, uh, really, who cares? Well, that's what you can say that about the Commonwealth Games as, as it is. Yes, so that's that is, yes, that's a problem, isn't it? But, um... <laughs> and you know, guys, just just moving on to something here. We, uh, mentioned I mentioned sort of climate and COP twenty eight in in in, in um, Dubai, the moment there was a sporting um, personality there, Gianni Infantino, the FIFA president. He, 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 we went to 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 uh, COP. I believe he flew on his or a private jet to get there just to underline FIFA and his commitment to climate change. We saw on his Instagram more his commitment to meeting famous people. There was the handshake with Prince Charles. Hug with Lula from Brazil, um, you know all sorts of other dignitaries. It's really weird for me. I, again, I, I, you guys maybe be devil's advocate, but this comes two weeks after FIFA announced the 2030 World Cup um, bloated event on on three continents with three games in South America before moving to Europe and Africa. Uh, Forty eight team World Cups now. It just felt a bit weird to me. I suppose it reflects the extremes in the climate debate which is do you stop all holidays abroad or do you try to find mitigations and making it more environmentally sustainable do you stop all sporting travel for global tours and for fans going around the world or do you try to find ways of making it more sustainable and for this cop Gianni Fatino certainly isn't the only person who's attended who you would wonder what perhaps they're doing there it does seem to be a gathering of some of the the great and the good, so many sort of sideline conferences and sessions and seminars, which is all sort of very well-meaning, you'd think, in terms of the panels. But you wonder, what is it all achieving, particularly, you know, against the backdrop of all this, without getting into the technicalities of climate policy, what we've had the head of COP talking up, haven't we, fossil fuels in some way? Rob, I suppose he would, because he's also the chairman of the United Arab Emirates um, Petroleum company so you know he's doing his job it has been an odd event but we're we're a sports podcast and that's why you know our focus is on on sporting figures and it strike me as odd that Gianni Infantino was there and given given the backdrop to 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 his travels and FIFA's current decision making and to me something that stands out is we haven't been told what Gianni Infantino went there for apart from to show solidarity with the climate cause. We haven't been told if you particularly raise certain things with national leaders that like he wanted them to do to make 
football more sustainable or something he was suggesting FIFA would do to help the environment. It, it just looked like a load of photo ops. Well, if you look at the, the, the last World Cup and the next World Cup in Mexico, USA and Canada, and then one after that in I mean, Morocco, Spain, Portugal, and then South America, I mean, that just looks crazy in terms of uh, you know climate change, international travel. The, the Qatar World Cup, they claimed that they were they're going to be the greenest ever World Cup and all these sorts of you know, carbon neutral things. It t- turned out to be complete nonsense. You know, it, it is it is odd. Yeah, I think this is for a lot of world leaders, including sports leaders, the, the COP is just like a, 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 a sort of a place where they can go and get pictured shaking hands with you know other world leaders and i'm sure um that's what that's certainly what happened on on johnny infantino's instagram uh and i you know i i wait to see any sports international sports body genuinely do something um for green issues because it's all very well to to say we are committed to it but you need to you need something absolutely um real and that you can see rather than you know carbon offsetting or planting trees or or whatever i think you need to take a a much more active role if if you're going to take it seriously if you're not fine just just don't claim you are yeah i think we have seen formula one attempt to move some of the events closer to each other so the 2024 calendar does start in Bahrain, then goes nearby to Saudi Arabia, then to Australia, then Japan, China, rather than I think sometimes it's gone to Asia, then switched the other part of the world, then back again. So that would point to addressing at least some of those uh, travel sustainability issues. Yeah, it's all uh, one. The whole thing is uh, that, that's that's a, that's a that's a tricky one to start talking about green issues with, with Formula One, isn't it? Yeah. So where's Johnny Infantino been as well this week? Oh, he's been to, well, I think it's the same jet looking at the the, the, the travel there. I think he went to um, Indonesia where the Under-17 World Cup was being played, then, then took himself to Guam, um, population 170,000. Um, one of the recipients, like the other 211 members of FIFA, of FIFA's munificence over the years. So he played a game there. Then the jet took him, I think, to Miami, where uh, Comla Ball was having its draw for the Copa America that was played in the US um, next summer. Uh, and again, you know, uh, another another opportunity for photos in a game with football legends in Miami. And and I guess the roadshow will 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 will, will carry on. Um, it's just just you know striking and perhaps a bit. Galling that for for real, you know, people who are worried about climate change, environment when when these these opportunities are, are taken advantage of, perhaps. Um, Rob, some other news from FIFA this week. There was a written verdict in the Luis Rubiales case. What happened there? Yeah, the full findings, and it gives a great insight into the case itself, running for dozens and dozens of pages. So you get to see the statements made by Rubiales, witness statements as well, and just how the disciplinary committee did form its verdict. So certainly this has been one of the priorities of FIFA's legal side, they have said in recent years, to open up more to publish these verdicts. And it did give us an insight, particularly into the testimony of the English FA chair, Debbie Hewitt, who 
certainly revealed what it was like being with Rubiales in Sydney at that World Cup final, which of course uh, saw Spain beat England, and just what Rubiales' conduct was like, particularly in the tunnel as they were about to go out to the trophy presentation, where of course the non-consensual kiss on Jenny Hermoso by Rubiales eventually happened. And what Debbie Hewitt told FIFA was that um, Rubiales was unpleasant and unnecessarily aggressive. Then on the podium, he seemed to forcibly kiss Lucy Bronze, the England defender, on her face and stroke the face of another England player, uh, Laura Coombs. Rubiales told FIFA's disciplinary committee that Debbie Hewitt portraying him as some sort of a creep is absolutely disgusting. But FIFA ultimately came down on the side of the complainants when, of course, it banned Rubiales for three years from football. Also interesting, I think it, it illustrated this idea, well, not idea, this is what how this practice of what happened is that the, the Spanish Federation's press officer was forced to sort of put out a statement um, basically with stating that uh, Jenny Hermoso had, had sort of cleared Rubiales of any sort of um, non-consensual act, which then proved completely wrong and sort of, I mean, actually, I think they, they later removed the statement from the website after, after Rubiales had been suspended. Yeah, I, I must say the investigation, it shows that when, when they want to, FIFA can bring down the full weight of its investigation teams and, and complete um, an investigation like this rapidly and then publish the conclusion in fairly short order as well. It's something you'd like to see more of. Um, this one was acted upon with you know, such urgency and alacrity. You, 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 you'd hope this was now the benchmark for all sorts of investigations at FIFA. Well, moving completely onto a different subject now. Bigger perhaps than any transfer, any club takeover. The deal that so many wait for in the football cycle is what happens with the Premier League's TV rights and the domestic rights have now been settled in a new four-year deal in the UK from 2025 to 2029. Sounds like a bit of a status quo, Martin, but with, with so much behind it. Yeah, so just give some details. Um, four years instead of three years, 270 live matches instead of 200. And the, the total, um, it, it's basically a 4% increase in the live rights. So um, the total over four years is £6.7 billion, um, pounds, I should say. The, uh, you know, whether that, it, this is the first actual auction since 2018. So um, a lot of people seeing what's going to happen because, you know, across Europe, there hasn't been that much movement at all. In fact, some, some of the major leagues have gone down. Uh, Sky are the biggest winners. They've got four of the five packages, 215 live matches. TNT Sports used to be BT Sports. That's staying the same, 52 matches. They're still paying the same, 325 million a year. And the BBC get the highlights. That stays the same as well. That's um, it's basically 70 million a year um, for the their match of the day. So it's, uh, I, I think there's sort of, Perhaps the clubs, some, some clubs are you know happy now. You know they know they can plan for the next end of the decade. I think some of the bigger ones are hoping they might have got a little bit more because they're putting so many matches out there. So who best to unpack some of this with further? Francois Goddard from Enders, 
some of the brains behind analysing how much should be paid, how much they expect to be paid in these types of deals. So, Francois, welcome to Sports Unlocked. Is it a good deal for the Premier League, the clubs, the broadcasters? Who comes out best from it? Robin, it may sound a bit boring, but yes, it's good for everybody. Uh, in the context of uh, deflation everywhere, the league uh, keeps its head above the water. And Sky uh, has a better grip on the, the, the rights. And for the consumer, for the, for the fan, I think it's better because, well, they will have more games, as Martin said. They will have more games to, to watch on the telly. And uh, there will be less fragmentation because Amazon is out. So we have only two broadcasters instead of three. Uh, where is the Premier League's domestic rights now compared to La Liga, uh, France, Liga, Serie A and, and Bundesliga? What are we talking about here? Well, there's an enormous gap between the, the Premier League and, uh, and rival leagues. And, and this, gap, this gap is, uh, is uh, in terms of uh, over 500 million with, uh, with the Spanish League, La Liga, which is number two. And the gap is steady, which is the most important thing, I think, for the, the Premier League. Because thanks to this gap, they have the best show uh, in, in global football. And thanks to this gap remaining steady or even increasing because of international sales, they are in this virtual circle where uh, they improve the show, they get more demand. Uh, what, what is clear to me is that uh, looking forward, growth will be international as opposed to domestic. Why did Sky not try and drive a hard bargain? Why, why were they happy to pay? Well, I think Sky has proved uh, since the very beginning. You remember that Murd uh, Rupert Murdoch supported the launch of the Premier League in the early 90s. Uh, Sky understands that a football game played in 2027 will be as good as the money you put on the table today. So a, a football game is not like buying a film from Hollywood. You, you buy the tape and you try to, to get the best bargain for it. And that's it. You show it and there, there's no change. Whereas a football game depends on uh, its financing ahead. And, and Sky understands that. And Sky has shown uh, not only uh, in the UK, but also in on the continent, say in Germany, where they they are active over the years, that they want a, a very high quality product because they need this product and they they uh, they, they invest in it. And I, I see continental broadcasters who don't seem to get that. They they, they try to get the, the cheapest deal today, which which is against their best interest. But is there, a, is there a cultural element to some of this in terms of British consumers seem con maybe not happy, but content to be squeezed at these high price points, whereas in Germany, the German public would just walk away, presumably, if, if, the, if the subscription prices were to rise exponentially? Good question. Uh, I, I would remind you that in Germany, one... Uh, Live, near live highlights on free-to-air TV are much more extensive than what you get in the UK. 
So the, the pay TV proposition is a little bit less attractive. Uh, then over the years, uh, it's true that it's true that the, 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 the German broadcasters have struggled to to raise pay TV penetration, and Britain Britain is a leading digital market. Before digital, Britain was a leading subscription TV market. So all of this work well together. Can I also add that the Bundesliga is less competitive than, than the Premier League? And so maybe in the past few years, the Bundesliga was not exciting enough for people to, to, to subscribe massively. Arguably, the Premier League has never been so exciting this season. I mean, if you just look at the last two weekends when the deal was done, we're having you know all manner of goals being scored, upsets, three three threes, four threes, two twos, bar etc. The title, um, the top eight teams haven't been this close, I think, since Leicester won the. The, the uh, I should be more critical, but I see that the Premier League uh, business model works very well. One notable part of the new rights is one fewer player with Amazon out of the picture. They had entered the market in 2019 by gaining the rights to two complete rounds of matches, the first time that had happened in the UK. But this time there are fewer packages that have been sold, only five packages, and Sky have secured the maximum allowed, which is four out of five. And what do we make of this departure then of Amazon? We've seen in Australia this week, Amazon have picked up um, ICC World Cricket rights to show domestic uh, broadcasts there. Around the world, we've seen Apple only want global rights. So what do we make of Amazon withdrawing then from Premier League rights? Well, Robin, Amazon will broadcast one game per week of the Champions League in the UK from uh, next September. And I think uh, Amazon is happy with this model. Uh, they, they have Champions League games, uh, one game per week, already in Germany and Italy, and they have one NFL game per week in the US. So Amazon is happy with that at this point. Doesn't mean that in the, in the next stage, in the next cycle, they may not ask for more. Apple, it's a bit early to, I mean, those who had expectations with Apple were too impassioned. Apple started with sports in its main market, the United States, only last year. Give them time to, to, to learn a little bit. Same thing with Google. You know that Google bought the, the, the NFL Sunday ticket, but it's only one year ago and they started broadcasting in September. I, I, I wouldn't see them uh, stepping in the UK at the prices we have at this point, but uh, watch this space. I, I, I think uh, that Google may be interested next time. For international listeners to this podcast might be surprised to know that some games that take place Saturday afternoons are not, they can't be shown in, in the UK live. Um, there's just been this blackout. It's been there historically. The idea is to protect match attendances and also amateur football taking place there helps sort of create a, a sort of, you know, big moments, you know, the Sunday night match, the you know, the Saturday night match. What do you think of this blackout? Well, this is a, a British oddity, but again, it works pretty well because despite the blackout, well, brackets uh, in, in the other big four European leagues, all games are broadcast on TV, end of brackets. 
despite this blackout, the, the Premier League is doing pretty well, and the Premier League can do these nice moves, uh, uh, just like they've just done. They they just have more games, making the whole package uh, a little bit more attractive and allowing Sky to tell its subscribers uh, you will get more. And uh, so if they can keep it, why not? And th there were talks this week of, of putting Women's uh, Super League at, uh, in that time slot. And I think from the whole industry's point of view, would be would be great. Francois, thank you very much for joining us here on Sports Unlocked. Good to get the thoughts of Francois, particularly on how women's football in England could gain its own distinctive slot, perhaps at three o'clock on a Saturdays when men's football dominates so much. Well, we have this week seen changes announced by UEFA to the Women's Champions League with a new format coming in from 2025, replicating the new format for the men's game, this Swiss model, which puts all the teams into one league. And then it's the top teams that go through automatically. Another lot go through playoffs. Uh, what is this format? How's it going to work? It's 18 teams, isn't it? Instead of the 36 in the men, uh, each team's going to pay six opponents. Yeah, this is the, the Swiss model Um Men's Champions League is also doing it for next season. I think it's quite interesting, this. I, I like the idea of it. Um, so you, you have one giant league table and result, the results um, from those six matches will go into forming this league table, which will then decide the, 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 knockout, um, the knockout round. Uh, but this comes off the back of some complaints. I think it was, you know, Manchester United women's team coach um, about them not being in the Champions League and smaller clubs being there. Arsenal weren't in the Champions League. So, um, Tara, do you think it's a, were they right to complain? Try not to get knocked out. I think that's the nature of competition. Um, but on, on, the, on the, um, the merit of the Swiss competition or the Swiss format you described, it's, it's happening at exactly the same time as the men's. And, and there's a different degree of um, maturity over you know, men's professional football and women's. Quite keen to see how which one of them copes better with this new model. I think potentially the women's game will, will do a lot better out of this. There's also, I thought, intriguingly, and thought this was really good, that uh, UEFA is going to have a second tier competition for women's uh, European women's competition, which is uh, a, a knockout, straight knockout competition, a bit like the old UEFA Cup, um, which I think could be really good. A lot more distinctive as a format. A lot more distinctive, a uh, lot more jeopardy, one and done. But then you might have clubs that Martin described earlier complaining about not being in Europe after one game. Uh, Boohoo. Something I was reporting on in the last week, pretty notable, something to keep an eye on going forward. I was at the High Court in London for a concussion case being brought by almost 300 rugby union players. We've had some of them named now. They are claiming rugby authorities were negligent, not protecting them against the prospect of long-term serious brain injuries. And the case rolls on into next year. No announcement or decision on a group action. No, some of a class action with certainly quite a... Um, a lot of discussion in the hearing last week over proving and establishing complete medical records. Yeah, it's an intriguing one, Rob. I think they, they, they announced all the sort of names of the people taking part, didn't they? Some sort of household names that hadn't been known. It's a, this is a massively serious thing for rugby union, rugby league. It's, it's sort of, 
it can have a sort of really decisive effect on, on the whole sport. Um, American football went through this sort of quite painful process a few years ago, but I think for rugby it can be even worse because then they're, they're not rich. Rugby is not a rich sport like American football. This is this is really serious. Quite a serious end to this week's pod as ever. You can message us at Sport Unlocked on X, Facebook, and Instagram. Your feedback, sportunlockedpod at gmail.com. But now, thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>